So we've talked about things like social proof, things like loss aversion. Peak end rule is one of my favorites, mostly because this is maybe a small aside. I think behavioral science can sometimes get the rap of just being about nudges. Welcome to the Behavior Change Marketing Bootcamp Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Dale, with over 20 years experience delivering behavior change marketing across NHS, public health, local government, central government. I work directly on some of the biggest campaigns such as Change for Life, as well as working on much more focused campaigns with some of our most vulnerable members of our communities. I know how hard it is to take the theory and the science and apply it frontline whilst delivering under such pressure with such huge expectations. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the wonderful world of behavioral science, the wonderful world of social marketing and design thinking, and any other clever stuff that helps us communicate change, influence behavior, and ultimately increase our impact. Sound good? Let's dive in. Hello, and we're delighted to welcome into the studio today a recognised authority in applying behavioural science to marketing and customer experience, Jennifer Kleinhens. So Jennifer has worked with brands like AT&T, McDonald's, Adidas or Adidas. I'm never sure. (laughs) And Starbucks and is now the founder and managing director of customer experience consultancy, Choice Hacking. Jennifer hosts the popular behavioral science podcast, also called Choice Hacking, which you can find on all major streaming platforms. And she's also the author of several books available on Amazon and her website is choicehacking.com. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming today. We are super fans. Uh, of thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, my pleasure. Honestly, uh, we really are super fans. When you said you could make it, we were like, yes, we're so happy because we absolutely love. I've read your book and the book is excellent. I love podcasts. so I definitely gravitate more to the podcast. And then I don't know if you've noticed when I talk about your work, I call it the Gucci of behavioral science and marketing because it's so good. Your content is just outstanding. And I understand how hard it is to make a podcast that good. So yeah, we'd just like to say thank you for doing that. But to get us started, could you share a little bit about how you got into behavioral science and marketing and a bit about your background? Sure. Well, I mean, before I do that, thank you so much for kind words. I always I always appreciate that. It's so nice to hear people are enjoying the podcast and the book and the content and all that. So thank you for that. Yeah. So I guess my journey into behavioral science, it's an interesting one. So actually, marketing is my second career. My first career, I was a classical violist for 15 years. I turned pro when I was like 15 or 16 in orchestras, traveling, doing the whole thing. Yeah, I bet you didn't expect the story to start this way. And I found myself, wow, yeah, in, you know, different cities, Boston, New York, and ended up in Nashville. And when I was there, I was sort of living the life of a journeyman musician, right? Like in the U.S. is very different than Europe. I mean, you don't have orchestras in every street corner. You've got to travel to things. It's very hard to get full-time gigs or studio gigs. And much like an actor who begins writing their own movies because they can't get a job, I was sort of at the point where I was like, I need a little bit more control over my destiny. So I started a booking company, my very first business, And as a part of that, I picked up a book called Freakonomics, which now I think some people, behavioral scientists might poo-poo. But listen, to me, a person with no business background, a person who was just kind of learning about the way that economics and behavioral economics worked and what it was, 
I found it totally fascinating. And this was probably back in, this has got to be like the early 2000s. I don't remember when Freakonomics came out, but it was a while ago. And it sort of set me off down this path, this dual path, I should say, of business and then the behavioral side of things and kind of looking at things through a different lens than I had previously thought of them. So I went back to school, you know, I got a master's in creative brand management. Eventually I got an MBA. When I did get the MBA, I focused on consumer psychology, some behavioral economics, as well as marketing analytics, and really kind of got more formal, I guess what you would call formal training, but was always just devouring, you know, you know, nudge and thinking fast and slow. As those books were sort of coming out, I was interested in the the area and just sort of, you know, read it. And then as I was working first as, you know, I would say client side at AT&T for about five or six years, I was doing product innovation. So designing things from or working with designers, I should say, but working with those teams to look for human insights, behavioral insights, really, really smart folks, you know, everything from digital experiences to like connected car to retail, just an amazing training ground, especially when you're around people who are, you know, really well trained in all of that. And I was just sort of absorbing it, taking it all in and then kind of educating myself as I went. And then obviously over the past, you know, like ooh, I'm going to say six or seven years using behavioral science in a much more formal and kind of structured way. But yeah, that's that's really where it came from. I just picked up, you know, the random and very popular Freakonomics wow. and it set me off down a path. <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, your book is now added to that that range. Go to any Waterstones or any library, your book will be alongside Thinking Fast and Slow. What inspired you to write the book then? That's a massive step. I mean, and it's a fantastic book. I'd highly recommend it to all marketers or anyone interested, like you say. But was there a point where you just thought, right, I can do this. I'm going to I'm going to write my experience down. Yeah, I mean, I think I had gone through a process with a a specific client who I will not name, who I was really trying to get them to understand and buy into the benefit of behavioral science, a problem many behavioral scientists have. In fact, I was just involved in a whole LinkedIn conversation where people were kind of, you know, coming in and saying, I, I, how do I get people to buy behavioral science? They, I don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. That's how it began. I started writing blog posts because I wanted to create this narrative, this story, these snackable articles where the client, I could send them one about loss aversion or the peak end rule or whatever. They could read it in seven minutes and they could get it. They could understand it. And they knew how it worked for business. And that was like the genesis of yeah. just writing and kind of putting things together. As I started to kind of build that bridge between the more complicated behavioral science and the implementation of those behavioral science principles, I started to look around and I just didn't see anything that talked about customer experience plus behavioral science. There's a lot of marketing, like some really good books, obviously like Richard Shotton's book and a few others, but nobody had really talked about like, how does it work in a retail experience or a digital experience? I just felt like there was a niche there where it hadn't been communicated in the way that I felt like it should be communicated in a really like easy to get, easy yeah. to apply, not overly complicated, really written for, I would say, like marketers and customer experience folks that want to use behavioral science rather than behavioral scientists who want to apply things to marketing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's something about understanding the value 
and understanding what it's going to give you. It's almost like an ingredient in a recipe. Everyone wants the chocolate cake. You just want to know what you've got to buy from the supermarket to get there. And your book does exactly that. And the podcast episodes. Wow. I mean, yeah, you do nearly every episode is about 10, 12 minutes and it's so digestible, so easy to understand. And I think the way that you put everything in often very relatable brands and like you say, retail consumer environment, I think that's what really helps make it relatable because this is the world we live in and everyone has an experience or an interaction even if you don't go to the Apple store yourself, you know the Apple store. Or, you know, if you don't watch Netflix, I challenge anyone to not watch Netflix. But, you know, so I think people can begin to really see that actually behavioural science is all around them, all the time influencing them. I think people then get hooked. You want to know more and more about the, especially the psychology of the biases. Would you be kind enough, please, to sort of share? Uh, we asked beforehand, so be kind enough to share one of the most popular episodes. And I think it's the Netflix one, simply because they're all amazing. But this one, I wrote it down here. You have managed to not only tell the story of Netflix and start with the most fantastic music. It's like sends chills down your spine. But then you talk about choice overload, the cocktail party, um, the top 10. All these biases are interwoven and you begin as a just as a person to really understand how Netflix are adopting behavioral science across the whole of their customer experience. So please do share a little bit about that episode and how you got there and some of the biases in there. I mean, I think to your point, I do really try to write about brands that are universal, that people, and obviously you can tell from my accent, I don't know, maybe we should say for the listeners, I've lived in the UK now for six years. I'm originally from the US, as if you couldn't tell a mile away, uh, (laughs) the way I'm talking. I also lived in Australia and have worked with brands like Middle East, Africa, Europe, the US, Canada, like everywhere. And so I was really striving to create or talk about brands that everybody could understand. So things like Ikea, Netflix, like anything that basically is global, as global as I can get them. And to your point, like everybody knows Netflix, like whether you love it or hate it, you get it. And I think one of the things that they do so brilliantly, and this is always the question with behavioral science, isn't it? Are they doing it on purpose or are they just doing it and it happens to be something? But I think they're doing it on purpose because they're just so brilliant at it. And You know, the Netflix challenge, it's choice, isn't it? Like, it's a real double-edged sword for them because for many, many years, and they're obviously in a time of transition, there's much more competition now, but they went from zero to totally saturating the market in a space of, what, 10 years? And a big way that they did that was by using the positives of choice, right? The positive sides being, you know, you talk about the famous jam study, right? And they, I think what a lot of people try to take away from the jam study is like, oh, well, fewer choices is better. Well, yes, fewer choices is better when it's time to make a decision. It's easier to make a decision from three rather than 50. But having a lot of choices, as you saw, like in the famous jam study, attracted people, right? They, oh my God, there's so many. And the same with Netflix, right? I want to go because they have 50,000 titles. They have 800,000 titles. They have every show I could ever think of. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And that's great to attract people. However, when you get into Netflix, you then do have to make a decision. And I have spent, you know, many, uh, you know, evening sitting there, you know, with my partner kind of flicking through and going like, what about this? What about that? What about this? 
Oh, and it, it's a terrible experience. It cannot cause yeah. that. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can fall out with definitely. people. <laughs> you definitely can. So I think that's what they do really brilliantly is, you know, they have two tasks in front of them. They have to organize all of this information and then they have to kind of raise what is relevant to you. And a lot of people think, oh, well, they do that with the algorithm and that's enough. Right. Well, they just show me and they, they should know. And that's true. They want to show you something that's going to interest you, but they need to intrigue you enough to click on it and spend some time with it. And some of the ways that they do that, so social proof is a good example. They use the top 10, right? So if, and I am very guilty of this, this is how I ended up watching Squid Game and a bunch of other things. Things get popular. They're number one in every country. Oh God, well, you've got to watch it because in 2023, that's as close as we have to a water cooler show, right? This is close as you have is everybody's going to watch Squid Game because it's number one in a hundred countries. So, you know, the, the top 10, really important. I think the other thing to take away from the top 10 is like, yes, it's social proof, but it's also some cocktail party effect, right? It's in your area, in your country, in your town, like however they decide to kind of define the top 10, it's something that's very relevant to you. It's not everyone in the entire planet. It's people near you or close to you. It's your social circle. So then you start to pull on these sort of yeah. unconscious thoughts like, oh, gosh, well, you know, if everybody and their brother has watched Squid Game, then it can't be that bad. Like, I can take a chance on it. One of the other key things I think that people sort of forget about watching something on Netflix, committing to a show is time is precious. Time is more precious than money, right? We don't want to give up our time very easily. And it is a risk to try a new show. Like I might get, you know, skewered online for saying this, but I started to watch White Lotus because everybody else is watching White Lotus, not a Netflix show. But I was watching it on now. I I got about 10 minutes into it. I was like, this is just not for me. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just just not for me. (laughs) And I knew within 10 minutes and I was like, I'm not going to waste 16 episodes of this knowing that I'm just not really jiving with this show. And it's the same when you're on Netflix. You know, you see things and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. But it is a risk to try. So, you know, they do need to use some of these principles to de-risk that. So top 10 is some of the ways that they do that. You know, trending now is another good example. And I think, What kind of speaks to that is, you know, they did have the surprise me button for a while. If you remember, like they they had to get people. Yeah. So they had to get people from kind of scrolling through all the things and looking at the lists to, oh, God, I just don't know. Ah, Surprise me. And interestingly, that has not been a big success. So I believe that they're discontinuing it if they haven't already, because it, it ignores the social component, I think, of watching content which again is what they're so good at doing is kind of parsing through these millions. It feels like millions of titles using things like social proof cocktail party effect to make things more relevant to you. So understand the social context of what watching, you know, entertainment is about. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. They use social proof so expertly. You know, there's that intrinsic reward that I know I have a teenager. I watch him scroll through and it will he will want to watch what his friends are watching so they can talk about it at school the next day and that's really important it's really important to have kept up to date and like you say their own little version of the water cooler what about you mentioned in the podcast episode about how they test the thumbnails i think there's a huge amount of learning here for our audience in the importance of imagery Mm -hmm. 
actually activating a choice. Could you please share that? Sure. Yeah. So obviously Netflix, they do a ton of testing. Their algorithm is incredibly important to them. And the way that they put together thumbnails is, I don't want to say it's generative, right? It's not like they're going into AI or mid journey and saying like, oh, make me a thumbnail, but they have different pieces and they test, you know, multivariate testing. So they'll put different pieces together, different characters, different backgrounds, different settings. And they found a couple of things seem to really resonate with people. And that was a face. I mean, that's not surprising, right? You want to see a character, but not just any character. You want to see a character that their expression is, I guess, personifying what the tone of the film is. So you want to see someone laughing if they're in a comedy, not if they're like in Midsommar. You know what I mean? (laughs) Not a 24 horror movie, even though there might be lots (laughs) of laughing. It's not matching the tone. It's it's sort of the idea of clickbait, right? Like you want to get the emotions going, but you want them to be going in the right direction or else it feels there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And then the second part of it is, yes, you know, show that emotion and show a character But interestingly, not necessarily a popular character, a divisive character. So the example I use from Harry Potter, I'm not a huge Harry Potter person myself, but I understand the characters. You know, Harry Potter is not going to do as well as like Voldemort, right? Because Voldemort is like some people really really hate him and some people love to hate him, but he's he's divisive. It's you know, controversial. And so that is what's triggering people to go, oh, I'm definitely going to try this. I'm going to try this out. Okay. Oh, I did not realize that. That's really interesting. And I just love the fact that they're testing all the time because behavioral science is the word science in there. So being allowed to try and test and run all of that data. That's, I love that. I I think that's something that we do, we don't do enough of. I think you can get frightened of not doing it or getting it wrong or sometimes we're just working to such short deadlines and we're in such a rush. The pressure to deliver isn't there and it doesn't include Mm -hmm. the testing. So I think anything that can help as well, help people, but just, I don't know, building that culture of environment of testing Mm -hmm. in itself, that's got to stem from a behavioral science culture. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think partially for sure. I think part of it is the tech culture, the startup culture. It's a very numbers driven culture and they're very open about the fact that like they've got a test 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 i mean i think famously you know yeah. you hear these stories about how they come up with new shows you know they look at the data around different genres where things are set different showrunners or writers different actors and they can sort of use all of that to bring it together and create something they know is going to be appealing to people so that's definitely a part of that but i think it is critical i mean you can't really have a culture where behavioral science is taken seriously without a culture where experimentation is also taken seriously. And obviously in a digital environment, that's much easier than let's say like a retail environment or, you know, fill in the blank, but they've committed to it and it's obviously, you know, reap some rewards for them. Yeah, no, I love that. An experiment. How to say that again? I can't say the word now. Experiential culture. Yes, a culture experiment. Just to even um, to. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Tongue twisted. I don't want to try it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that in quotes for everyone. No, because that's absolutely lovely. I think uh, we have a lot of heads of comms and directors mm. of marketing listening. And I think actually that's something to aspire to most definitely. Because I think what's really hard for marketers if you're getting into this space is when you can look at all those biases Jen and there's like hundreds of them and you're thinking how on earth do I know which one to start where do I start 
how would you advise anyone? Where would you advise them to sort of mm. begin? What's their first steps in order to stop that overwhelm? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think the best place to start is, I personally think, with the ones that are just the most common. So we've talked about things like social proof, things like loss aversion. Peak end rule is one of my favorites, mostly because this is maybe a small aside. I think behavioral science can sometimes get the rap of just being about nudges. Obviously, nudges, it's its a whole thing within behavioral science, very important. But there's also a whole group of things that, you know, you can look at an experience or look at marketing holistically. And peak end is one of those, right? So peak end rule basically says, for those who don't know, people don't really judge an experience by every single moment, like averaged out. They judge it by the peak, which can be a good peak or a bad peak, a trough, and then the end of the experience. So if you start thinking about things like marketing budget, right? Well, if not every single moment punches at the same weight or some moments punch above their weight, it, shouldn't your yeah. budget also be allocated to those moments or discovering what those moments are and doubling down on those moments rather than suddenly looking at a CX budget or a marketing budget and saying, this feels like it goes with our strategic plan. So I guess we'll throw money at this, which is an inevitable yeah. thing. Everybody's kind of going through. I think this is the right thing to do. We want to talk about personalization. So throw it at personalization rather than taking a sort of behavioral science approach. How are people creating memories? What are the emotions they're experiencing? How does this all kind of, you know, come together into something that people think of as our brand or our customer experience? And I think that's the link for anyone listening to really take home is the link to customer experience. In our world, we often call it care pathway mapping, which is quite long, but it's essentially is exactly the same thing as you would do in consumer marketing, in retail, mm -hmm. in business, the customer experience, knowing and understanding the touch points before the purchase or before the contact and then during and after. And if you want them mm -hmm. to come back again, often in healthcare, we don't want them to come back again <laughs> if they're better. But um, if we're trying to get them to build healthy habits, then we do want them to repeat, right. you know, certain things. So you do a lot. I know you do courses on customer experience and you do elevate behavioral science to look very strategically across the whole experience, which I think is really refreshing. Often our marketing can get sort of shoved down into where people say, oh, just do comms and they just mean some words and you're at the wrong end of the yeah. process. Whereas the customer experience really elevates you to be not only at the beginning, but across it all looking looking down. I mean, I did, I said, oh, can we talk about that a little bit? You know, your journey mapping, but how would, what's one, apart from doing your course, yes. of course, Jen, <laughs> anyone wants to get started, do Jen's course on customer experience, <laughs> but any tips for anyone to get started? Do you think it brings anything to the party journey mapping or customer experience? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm biased because I did write a book about customer journey mapping. I find it very helpful, but I think the the old saying about models is very true, right? All models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think that customer journey mapping can be very useful. There are obviously criticisms of it. Oh, it's linear and the journey isn't linear and all this stuff. Yes, yes. But I think it has a lot of benefits in terms of getting people aligned, stakeholders in particular, thinking about your journey through the eyes of a customer. And when it comes to behavioral science, I think there's a lot of opportunities to, for example, add a behavioral swim lane. 
So you can talk about things like barriers. You can talk about, you know, what eventually will come like target behavior statements. I mean, what's stopping people? What are the, for example, the cognitive biases that might be at play? Some, you know, heuristics, those mental shortcuts that they might be using that are preventing them from either getting the emotional experience or performing the actual behaviors that you need them to perform. So I always find it really helpful when I do a customer journey mapping project. There is a always a behavioral swim lane. I think the other thing maybe to consider there as well, and I touched on it previous, like this has kind of become a thing for me around getting behavioral scientists or people who have training in behavioral science into positions in businesses where they're influencing strategy, they're influencing things at a very high level. This is why you know, behavioral science being synonymous with nudging for a lot of people, I think in business particularly can work against it because nudging is tactical. Okay. And in a business, especially a big business, most of the people who are sitting at the strategic tables, right, the C-suite, the people who are making strategic long-term decisions are not tacticians, right? They are strategists. And when they think nudge equals tactic, behavioral science equal tactic, then they get pushed down, you know, below that strategic table. But when you start to think about things like, you know, peak end rule for is a good example, emotion, meaning, attention, like all of these things that behavioral science, you know, has something to say about and some really interesting things that we should be listening to and implementing at the highest strategic levels in these organizations. This is why I think, you know, with customer journey mapping in particular, like, you know, you can kind of put these two things together, thinking about the things beyond the nudge, right? If for no other reason than to yeah. just elevate the conversations around behavioral science in organizations. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Not just kind of is a marmite, isn't it? People love it or hate it and it can change the narrative. People have so many assumptions. I think they bring a lot to the table already about it. They've almost decided can be quite polarizing. And I think that sounds like behavioral science as a discipline is probably where marketing used to be or comms and marketing just, and I think that's probably at the C-suite now and it's a lot more respected and it's there, but it's taken a while definitely for, I think, you know, sometimes it's in, in communications and press, it's, you have to wait for things to go wrong till people realize that, you know, how important it is that you're there. But it sounds like it's growing discipline and the value added needs to be really evidenced and shared. So I love the idea of a swim lane. I think I'm going to take that back to our members and mm-hmm. say, you know, because we, we do something called Care Pathways and it's not as, hasn't got all the touch mm-hmm. points on it, isn't the whole journey, but it is a great way to start using behavioural science mm-hmm. strategically because you can start thinking about the biases here, there and everywhere. And it places, it contextualizes Mm -hmm. them almost. So it helps, I think, you navigate which ones you need and don't need. And what we will do is we will hook up in the show notes, the links to the biases Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So we'll pop them across to your podcast episodes where you explain them in more detail. So anyone interested can find out more. My final question, and we ask all uh, podcast guests this, is could you please share one book that changed your life? I can't. It's not a behavioral science book. I hope that's okay. 
But yeah, I thought long and hard about this and all I had to do, there's a bookshelf right above where my webcam is. And I just looked up and I was like, oh, of course, there's a book called Resonate by a woman named Nancy Duarte, who runs a, we'll call it like a presentation consultancy in, I believe it's in San Francisco. So she helped like Steve Jobs put together some of these big Apple presentations that are so like iconic. And this book Resonate talks about how you put together a story, how you present a presentation, basically, like the ebbs, the flows, the emotional journey. She uses so many like brilliant musical metaphors, which to me as an ex-musician, I think, you know, it's it really spoke to me. But interestingly, that book became my Bible, I guess, when I was getting my master's in brand management. And we actually ended up winning like a huge business competition because I like I, you should see how many sticky notes are in this book, but I used it to create this presentation. We beat like Harvard, Wharton, Stanford. I got to close the New York Stock Exchange. And that is how I got my very first corporate job because the company that sponsored us was AT&T. So I will say that that book, in more wow. ways than one, changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the way that I think about storytelling. And it changed the way that I put together presentations. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Congratulations. I'm coming top of the class, getting yeah. a job out of it. A lot for one book, um, but Nancy Forty, oh, if you ever hear this, uh, I owe yeah. you like a high five or a lunch or something. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, right. I'd never heard of that book. Um, it sounds Great. absolutely intriguing. I mean, it sounds perfect for any marketer, communicator, storyteller, and everyone. We're all in the digital world now. Being able to communicate is so mm-hmm. key, isn't it? So, yeah, I will pop that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in the one. And I think I'm definitely going to get that one. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Jen. You've said some brilliant, explained so much in such a short time, as you always do. I will put all of the links into the show notes for everyone listening. Thank you so much for giving your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We're so delighted you joined us. And if you've got any value out of this at all, or even if you just simply had a little chuckle, please do share it with anyone you think it may benefit. And please, if you do leave a review, oh my gosh, we would be forever in your debt. The algorithms on podcasts are pretty tough and reviews do make all the difference. So please do head over onto your platform and leave us one. And also, if you need to know anything about our latest training or you just want to get in touch, head over to our website, which is www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk forward slash bootcamp.